You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Thank you for having me back here, I guess, on loan from my home church, Harvest Bible Chapel, London, here with my extended uh, family in uh, Harvest Markham. It's a privilege to be here again. The first devotional book I ever read as a younger Christian... um, It's probably one many of you have heard of. It was written by Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. Have you heard of that one? And uh, it was written in the late 1800s. And there was a little daily devotional there that I've never really been able to forget. I want to read it for you. He says, The typical view of the Christian life is that it means being delivered from all adversity. But it actually means being delivered in adversity, which is something very different. And uh, I couldn't agree more. That is the teaching throughout the Old and New Testament, and it is really vividly lived out in this story uh, that we started looking at last week, and we'll continue in today in 2 Kings chapter 19. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, why don't you get yourself over to 2 Kings 19 with me. Uh, It's about a man who is in deep trouble. His name is Hezekiah, and we saw the first part of the story last week. He is, uh, just by way of review, the king of a little nation called Judah. He is surrounded by this uh, really tyrannical empire of the Assyrians who have been gobbling up countries in its path as it's been taken over the Middle East, and now they're on his doorstep about to invade in Jerusalem. He's already watched his brother nation Israel gobbled up already. Now, when we met him last week in chapter 18, verse 3, God had a few things to say about him that are uh, quite incredible, and uh, I want you to just be reminded of it. In verse 3, it said, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That right there should grab our attention. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. That had not been said of a king now for about 300 years since David had died. And then he went on to say, this is the Lord, uh, verse 5 of him, he trusted in the Lord. I want that to be said of me. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. And as I said last week, I I can't think of another Old Testament story where the story is told in its entirety three times in three different books. We get it here in 2 Kings 18. You can find the same story uh, by a different author under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 2 Chronicles 20. And then again in Isaiah 36. The title of the message last week was Walking with God When the Wheels Fall Off, Part 1. And so today we're in it again, Part 2. And it is so relevant to our lives because, listen, brothers and sisters, there is going to come a time in in your life, in my life, where the wheels just fall off and the questions uh, come. Where are you, Lord? How am I going to get through this? What what are you teaching me in this? Where is the end of this? Last uh, week, I pulled out six principles as we uh, got into the story. And I I just want to review them quickly because they'll help you as we look at the next few. Uh, Here was the first principle last week. My circumstances don't uh, define what God might do in my life. And And you'll remember we saw how Hezekiah didn't let his family dysfunction or the pressure of his circumstances stop him 
from pressing into the Lord. And then number two was a walk marked by godly choices prepares me for future trials. And we, we, we saw there that every choice I make for godliness and walking with him, God's using those choices to form me in my sanctification, preparing me for tomorrow. And then number three, God's evaluation of me needs to matter more. It just flat out does. And God had given Hezekiah a report card in the chapter last week, and we saw the things that God's looking for in our lives, that he responds to, that he rewards, that he commends. Number four, walking faithfully with God doesn't exempt me from the crisis. And that was really the surprise. That was what challenged our view that, hey, if I have God, I guess it's an insurance policy, and it isn't. God walks with us, sometimes delivers us fast, sometimes walks us through the trial, but that's what we saw in his life. Then number five, I must become wise to the nature of spiritual attacks. And we got some wisdom about how anytime the enemy is attacking, his goal is to undermine our trust in the Lord. All of that leading to this sixth thing, which really sets us up today, uh, Decide in advance where you're going to turn. Decide in advance where you're going to turn. Don't, don't leave it until the crisis. Settle it today that when it comes to these situations, we don't run from God. We turn to him. And what we saw last week is Hezekiah makes this pivot. This pivot to press into the Lord, to go to the house of the Lord, and everything that's about to happen that flows out of that happens because of that very pivot. So six principles last week. Today we're going to get four more so that by the end of this little mini-series, you're going to have ten principles to think about when uh, the wheels fall off. And today really a special focus on seeking God in desperate prayer. And before I say anything more, why don't we just pray together? Heavenly Father... How good it is to be in your house, how good it is to assemble together as believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation, bowing our hearts before Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, lifting up and ascribing to him glory and honor, because, Lord, you've told us in your word that when you raised Jesus from the dead, you set him above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. So as we come today, Lord, we're needy, we're hungry, we need your feeding, but Lord, we know who we come before, and we know that we have access right now that as we open your word that you will feed us and prepare us and strengthen us, and we ask you to do whatever it is you need to do in our lives to get our attention and to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so let's start with this first thing. If you're taking notes, you probably have a handout, and you can follow along with me. But uh, first principle today, jot it down. Persist in seeking God even when the crisis deepens. Persist in seeking God even when the crisis deepens. We're at the beginning of chapter 19, verse 1, and you can just read along with me. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth now, that's kind of an act of mourning. He's, he's broken by what's going on. And went into the house of the Lord, and he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest. So he's sending his dream team, his, his inner circle of guys that he sends out to get things done. Now, notice where they're going. To the prophet Isaiah, 
the son of Amos. Now, this is very interesting. Now, uh, you'll know if you've read your Bible, Isaiah is a pretty big figure in the Bible. He's written a lot. He was involved in a lot of things. And now he's coming center stage along with Hezekiah in this most important time. And uh, just by way of reminder, God used prophets uh, to bring his word directly to his people, either to the people directly or to the king of the people. And he brought either encouragement or rebuke. And if you read the Bible, you'll find out that most of the kings didn't like the prophets and didn't want to listen to them. Hezekiah wasn't one of them. And he did listen to them. This is the message he sends. Verse 3. This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. He's using a imagery here. He's saying, Isaiah, we are in a bind. We... We have a problem so big. We're like a woman who has been in a long uh, labor giving birth, but she doesn't have energy anymore. She can't push anymore. And if this baby doesn't come out, uh, the baby and her, they're going to die. That's us right now, Isaiah. Look at verse 4. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of Rabshakeh, whom the master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God. See, he's not just upset about the military problem. He knows that all that's been going on is that the enemy's been mocking his God. He calls it out. And will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, Isaiah, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Now, in verse 6, Isaiah has a message right back for Hezekiah from the Lord. He says this, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. See? God agrees with Hezekiah. The bigger problem here is these people mocking the living God, reviling his name. God sees it. He's acting now because of it. Look at verse 7. Behold, I will put a spirit. This is interesting. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will, I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And sure enough, a couple verses later, you find out that uh, the king and the army, somehow he got preoccupied. He heard about a rumor about some other military problem. And he takes his army and starts withdrawing from Hezekiah's land and goes and kind of gets gobbled up in some other military battles. So God says, I'm going to do it. And he starts doing it. Now, can you picture Hezekiah? I mean, you've just prayed. You've poured your heart out to God. The prophet comes, gives you the word. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Don't worry. Everything's on it. And you start to see things happen. And, and, and imagine the feeling. I mean, he's been praying and now the military is moving away. He'd be thinking, that is the fastest prayer I've ever had answered. I mean, wow. And then he gets the letter, or in our, in our day, and then he gets the call at one in the morning. And then he gets the text, the sidewinder missile of a text that out of the blue tells us, okay, he gets a letter from Assyria, verse 10. It says, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. By the way, have you ever had an experience like this? You've been praying perhaps in a difficult situation and, and really pressing into God, maybe with your small group or some trusted friends, and, and man, some things start changing. 
And the situation starts reversing and you're like, I'm seeing answers to prayer right now. My, this is amazing. My, my faith is rising. God is active in my life. It, I, I think I see the deliverance coming. And then you get a letter from Assyria. And it says, I'm not done with you yet. This isn't over until I say it's over. Notice what the letter says. It, it continues, verse 11. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? <laughs> He's back at it. Have the gods of the nations ever delivered them, the nations that my father destroyed? So the crisis isn't over. It looks so promising. And this is the point where we all do this. We go, God, are you toying with me? Like, am I, what, what's going on here? Now, I'm going to put a pause on the Hezekiah story for a moment, and I want to press into this a little bit because what's going on right now is this is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life, and here it is. It's the decision to persist in prayer even when the crisis deepens. Not to run, not to bail, not to find another solution, not to call out God for being faithless, but to persist. Now, you need to know that your Savior had a lot to say about persisting in prayer, even when it's difficult. Jesus talked about it a lot as he was instructing uh, us about praying. I mean, in Luke chapter 18, he tells the story of the persistent widow. I love this. It started out like this, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he, he told the story of a widow. She had a problem, a lot of injustice in her life, and she goes to the judge and starts demanding that he act and do something, and he won't listen to her, but she's so persistent. And eventually, Jesus says, this wicked judge, he was a corrupt judge, finally gives in and gives her justice. And here's his point. His point was, if this wicked human judge would do that, what do you think my perfect heavenly father will do with his children who call on him night and day? Now, Jesus isn't content to stop with that story. He keeps, he wants to press the point of persistence. In Luke chapter 11, he tells another story. He tells the story of a guy. He goes to his friend's house in the middle of the night and says, I have no food for my family. Help me out. He's knocking on the door. And his friend's like, dude, I, we're sleeping. I'm, I'm not dealing with you right now. Go away. But the guy keeps knocking, and Jesus says, and, and this, this friend who's just a regular guy, a sinful human, eventually gives in and helps him. And his point is, if that would happen, what do you think my heavenly father, my perfect heavenly father will do with his children? How, don't you think he'll be gracious with them? But Jesus isn't done. And he tells another story. He tells the story of, of how regular human fathers, guys like you and me, were not perfect, some of them very, very sinful, they would never think of giving their kids scorpions and snakes when they came and asked for food. No, actually, he says, when they come and ask for eggs and fish to eat, he would never, even human fathers don't uh, withhold that. And then his point is, how much more do you think my heavenly father will give graciously to his children? Actually, I was thinking about that particular one, and I was thinking, you know, so often when we pray and we don't see the answers to prayer that we're, we're hoping for, and we've got our list, and we're like, God, how come on, I asked for this, and, and you need to understand it from God's perspective. Sometimes when the Lord hears our prayers, he's like, you think you're asking for eggs and fish, you're asking for scorpions and snakes, and I love you too much to give it to you. I read this quote somewhere, I, for the life of me, cannot remember who authored it, but I just found it simple but helpful. 
If the request is wrong, God says no. If the timing is wrong, God says slow. If you are wrong, God says grow. But if the request, the timing, and you are right, God says go. And that's just a reminder to us that God has a different perspective when even we come to him. But don't, don't for a moment think that Jesus hasn't called us to persist in prayer, which is why in Luke 11 verse 9, he wraps up those stories by saying this, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. And you know what's cool about that? It's progressive. Ask leads to uh, seeking, which is even more intentional, and then knocking, more aggressive. In fact, the original language literally says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Jesus wants us to persist in prayer. Because, not because he's uncaring or unsympathetic, but because it's in this persistent posture that we're maximized in our intimacy with God as we walk. Now, I say all that to say this. Hezekiah got that. Hezekiah had this going on in his life. Look at how he responds in verse 14 to the letter. It says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, now note this, and spread it before the Lord. So simple there. He went up to the house and he spread the letter before the Lord. Now, question, does God need the letter spread on the floor so that he could read it and find out what Assyria was saying to Hezekiah? Not at all. What's Hezekiah doing here? Here's what he's doing. This is a posture of absolute dependence before the Lord. He's coming to the house. He's laying it down. I want you to think about this for a moment because some of you at the end of the service, when we talk about some of the burdens on your heart that you need to unburden before the Lord, you need to do this very thing. And he's spreading it before the Lord and he's saying to the Lord, in effect, Lord, read my mail. I can't do anything in this situation. I'm utterly lost It's totally beyond me, Lord. Please do something about it. And listen, there comes a time in our lives where all we can really do is to recognize that Assyria is real. I can't make it go away. I can't wish it go away. When it does go away, it seems to come back. And the most important thing I can do is get before the Lord, spread it before the Lord in prayer, saying, I got no place to go. I need you. Persist. Persist in seeking God even when the crisis deepens. All right, here's the next thing. I just said it this way in my notes. Recall and reflect on God's prior faithfulness toward you. Recall and reflect on God's prior faithfulness towards you. Now, I don't know what Hezekiah was thinking when he went into the Lord and spread it out before him. It doesn't tell us, but here's the thing. I I bet he was thinking at some point of an event that happened in his life with the Lord that strengthened his faith. I want to tell you about this event, okay? It actually happens in chapter 20, right at the beginning. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, we're in chapter 19. You're telling me something in chapter 20 happened before 19? Yes, I am. You know movies you've seen before where uh, occasionally the director will use a flashback? So you'll be in a story and then maybe it's a dream sequence or something like that or he just has a memory and then it goes to a flashback of something in the past and it helps you understand the present. 
The story at the beginning of chapter 20 is a flashback. It all happens before Syria invades. All the Old Testament scholars on this agree, but I want you to just see this story because I want you to see how God used it to strengthen Hezekiah's faith. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Now, by the way, just that's another reminder to us, and they're all over Scripture, of the fact that our lives are very short. Our lives are a vapor. And, and, and the lie of the world is that you have all the time in the world to do whatever you want. We presume on that. We, we presume on tomorrow. And the urgency of the Bible is you do not know when your life is going to be required of you which is why the urgency in all of the Bible is get right with God. And the gospel message is get right with God through Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and I have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out into the middle of the court, the word of the Lord came to him, turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, note this, oh, I just so love this. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Loved ones, he does. He, he hears, he sees, he knows, he's intimately involved in your life. Every prayer request, every burden. Note what he says. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. See, that it all, that's all wrapped up by the end of chapter 19. So this is how we know this has happened in the past. And then he says, I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And there's the promise. I'm giving you more time. I'm going to do something in your life, the likes of which is going to blow your minds. You want to be really weak in your ability to call on God when you're in a trial? Here's how you do it. Forget everything the Lord has ever done for you. Just forget it. Stop thinking about it. Just lean into the short-term memory problem we all struggle with and focus just on today. Ignore verses like Psalm 9 verse 1 that says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. And I can guarantee you that if you're not in some habit occasionally of just reflecting on some of the things that God has done in your life, answers to prayer, Moving in your life, changing circumstances, you're going to find yourself weak and you'll find yourself when the crisis comes saying somewhere in your heart something like this. Lord, you never come through for me. I'm always the one where my prayers aren't answered. They get their prayers answered, but not me, never me. It's always, you never, by the way, uh, Little sidebar here. Have you ever noticed always and never words are rarely good in any relational conversations? I mean, I just think about, I've been married now uh, 25 years, and anytime my wife and I have had uh, mild tensions, so to speak, uh, when, 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 the, when the dialogue moves to, you never, you always, I'm always, you, never good, escalating it. Don't bring that into your walk with God. 
There is power in reflecting on, recalling the gracious acts of the Lord in your life. I want you uh, to consider taking on a little challenge. This is a little spiritual discipline you might add to your routine at some point. Go ahead and get yourself a journal. Maybe it's a moleskin or a wire-bound book, or maybe you have an app you can jot down notes or just a plain old Word document or something like that. Grab a cup of coffee and sit down sometime and just start reflecting on the ways that God has done anything, any act of grace, mercy, kindness, power, deliverance in your life, your spouse's life, your just start. Now, first of all, you don't try to do this all in one sitting. Maybe come back to it a bit, but here's the thing. You, you add to this over time, and eventually you're going to stand back and go, wow, I forgot. I forgot that he really means it when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you can think of trials he's seen you through, financial help when you didn't expect it, new direction when you had no vision, people who came to Christ that you were praying about, you forgot about, even the miracle of your own salvation. There's no end to the things you can do. So important to strengthen your understanding of what God's done for you. Now, here's the third thing in our message today. Jot this down. Crying out to God means desperate confidence. Okay, we're, we're, we're at the point of prayer. Hezekiah is about to pray. And what I want you to understand about the prayers in the Bible, they're what I would call desperate confidence, okay? Not to be confused with desperate delusion, Okay, that's a religious thing where we're just throwing Hail Mary passes to a God I know not who about, I don't know anything about, and just hope that the religiosity saves me. No. And we're not talking about self-confidence because, listen, when we're in prayer, we know we don't have it. When you look at the Bible and you look at the prayers of the Bible, you're going to find out that the, the pleadings of the Bible take desperation, because I, I'm, I can't fix it, and confidence in God, and they bring them together. In fact, I just made a list of some of the prayers in the Bible that have really moved me. I've got them on the screen for you. These would be a good thing for you to review sometime, maybe even as a small group exercise. Just take some of these prayers, pray them together. But you'll see desperate confidence all over the place. Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. Jonah chapter 2, God's Jonah's Prayer of Thanksgiving and Commitment. Psalm 51, David's Prayer of Brokenness and Confession before God. Second Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat's prayer for deliverance, very similar to this one here in Hezekiah. Habakkuk 3, the prophet's prayer of rejoicing. Daniel 9, Daniel's prayer for corporate repentance and revival. Ephesians 1, Paul's prayer for spiritual power. And Acts chapter 4, the apostle's prayer for boldness. Now, Today we're, we're dealing with Hezekiah's prayer, and I'm going to walk through it. And the reason I am is I want you to see the four things that go into desperate confidence. And my prayer today is the next time you're praying, you start to bring some of this desperate confidence into your conversation with Almighty God. Here's the first thing about what it is. Desperate confidence begins with a proper adoration of God. Look at verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. He's like, you know, Lord, you're surrounded by the angels in your holy uh, throne room. You are the God. You alone. He's refuting the attacks of the enemy who says that God was nothing more than an idol. He's stating truth about being the one true God. He says, you are the God. You alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. 
He's saying, you're not just the God of Israel. You're not just the God of the nations. You're the God, you're the Lord of the cosmos before whom all the angels bow and worship. Okay, this is how he's talking to the Lord. Now, I don't, I, I don't want you to forget for a moment that Hezekiah and Isaiah were contemporaries. I mean, they met at Starbucks about every week for coffee. They talked a lot, okay? And uh, I got to believe that somewhere in that conversation at some point, uh, Isaiah told Hezekiah about his own experience receiving a revelation from God about God's holy throne room. And do you remember Isaiah chapter 6? Have you ever read this? We were just singing about it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 says this when he saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and the angels around God said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, Isaiah was so overwhelmed by this in in the presence of God that all he could spit out was, Woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, Hezekiah is doing something like that as he is uh, providing adoration to God. Now, does God need to be reminded who he is? Is that what what this is about? When we we are doing our prayers and we do this adoration piece, and all of you have have ever had a prayer class have been told, you know, your prayers should have adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Remember Acts? And, and most of us are like, can I just get to the supplication so I'll do... Do you know what we miss? The adoration piece is the very thing that gets our hearts, our spirits within us right. It's the very thing on a spiritual warfare level that allows us to start striving in faith in the confidence of who he is. It fills our minds, it floods our minds, taking captive the lies of the enemy... Because we don't gravitate towards that. I mean, when we pray, it's like, I just got my list. But there's something powerful that happens on the inside when we focus on adoration, which is why I would just encourage you. You know, I love the worship. I love the worship in this church, by the way. I'm so grateful for it. I have been encouraged the last two weekends. But don't rely just on Saturday night and Sunday morning for worship. I would encourage you to get some private worship going on in your life. Get some worship songs that you can listen to throughout the week that could flood your mind with thoughts about God because that's the way that you keep this adoration thing going in your life. Last week, I heard the song that we were singing together. Do you remember what a beautiful name it is? What a wonderful name it is? What a powerful name it is? And uh, I was driving home to London on the way back, and kind of Kim and I are in a little bit of a valley and some things in our own life, and and that was a word that I needed that day. I was so moved by that song, I went and downloaded two versions of it, and throughout the week, I've been flooding that over and over. I needed to be reminded about the name of Jesus Christ. That's adoration. And when you get that going on in your life, it starts changing your prayers. Here's the next thing about desperate confidence. It has a sense of urgency, okay? Verse 16, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Now, uh, do you see uh, Hezekiah is being pretty bold here? He's using imperatives with the Lord, okay? Incline, hear, open, see, hear again. Do you know the Lord loves it when we stand uh, as his redeemed people and, and, and by faith call on him to act? 
I mean, that, that, he loves that. Five urgent cries of the heart, all saying the same thing. Lord, help. Lord, intervene. And there's an urgency and there's a passion in it. And God, God, help us with the professionalism of prayer, which starts to sound like just reading a rote kind of thing written out. It's become religiosity in our lives. It's become tradition, and it lacks all sense of urgency. It sounds formal. It sounds professional. God, help us from, save us from professionalism in our prayers. He wants us to come to Him with urgency and passion and call on Him as His children. Here's the next thing about desperate confidence. It's not a shame to be realistic. It just isn't. It's not a shame to be realistic about the situation. Look at verse 17. Hezekiah says, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. He's saying, Lord, it's true. We're, uh, we're in trouble. Uh, we're in a situation we can't get out of. This Assyria is, I mean, they're really good, God. Assyria knows what it's doing. We can't deal with them. Those guys are good. What I love about this is I love the fact that we can be honest before the Lord. We can, as we spread out the trials we're going, we can be honest about where we're at and how difficult the circumstances are. Do you know prayer is the one place in all the world where you can be totally and completely honest before the Lord? And there's no point trying to fake it either way. He can read you like a book. Notice, though, that Hezekiah isn't just honest and staying there on the problem, he always links it back to what he knows about God. See, end of verse 18. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. And he's like, Lord, they weren't God. You're the only God. You're, I know who I'm talking to. Then finally, this about desperate confidence. Desperate confidence is focused on God's glory. Look at verse 19. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand that... All the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. He's asking for help, but it's not just because there's a problem for the nation. It's because of God's reputation. It's because of God's honor. And this is what separates mature prayer from less mature prayer. It's, it's having the that. Do you see that there in the text? It says that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God. Some of your translations say, so that. Too often, our prayers lack the so that. I mean, we come to him and we bring our petitions, and very often, sadly, in so many of our lives, it's, Lord, I need peace. Lord, I need uh, enjoyment. Lord, I need prosperity. Lord, help me with this. But we lack a so that. We lack prayers that call on God not just to deliver us, but to do it in a way that God gets glory, where God's purposes in our lives are fulfilled. Now, when you start praying this way, when you bring a so that in your prayers, they start changing. So suddenly it's not just, Lord, help me at work in this pr uh, pressure situation I'm in. It's, Lord, work in me, in my job, in my career, in a way, any way you please, so that you get glory with what you're doing in it. And now, instead of just praying for my kids about, Lord, help them at school or to get a successful job or help them with this trial, it's, it's praying in a way now that starts moving to, Lord, what are your purposes in their lives? Work in their trial in this situation so that you get so much glory. I've been around a lot of prayer warriors in my life, and this so that is the one common thread I see in all of them. 
That their prayers are rich with a sense of praying, not just for God's deliverance, but in a way that God is seen to be the deliverer. All right, quick review here. Persistence seeking God even when the crisis deepens. Recall and review God's faithfulness towards you. Crying out to God means desperate confidence. Now, final thing today. Uh, Let's look at the way God responds. Number four. When God responds, his aim is to teach us about himself. He's always doing that. Look at verse 20. Now, it simply says there that Isaiah tells Hezekiah that God heard his prayer. That's it. God heard his prayer. It's very simple. But remember I told you this story is told also in two other places. And in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 21, it tells us a little bit more about what God said to him. I'm just going to read it to you. It says this. This is is God's response to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Now, I love that. Not just, I heard your prayer, but because you have prayed to me, Hezekiah, because you have prayed... This is the answer to your prayer. What's God saying there? It's so simple. He's saying prayer matters. Okay, back to Jesus, persisting in prayer. Here, God talking to Hezekiah. Prayer matters. He's saying, I want to do things through the prayers of my people so that they have the experience of relating to me through prayer. That's my will. You want to know the will of God? One of the aspects of his will is I want to work through your prayers. And I'm not going to give the entirety of his answer. He goes on for about 20 verses here. But here's the breakdown of the things he starts saying to Hezekiah. For about eight verses from verse 20 on, he has a message for Assyria. A direct message for Assyria. And what he does is he starts mocking them. God. God starts mocking the ones who were mocking him. And then around verse 29, he tells uh, Hezekiah a promise that life is going to return to normal in three years. And then around verse 32, God promises Hezekiah that not only will the enemy be dealt with, but they won't even be able to fire off a single shot. It's pretty incredible. Now, all I want to do is I want to pull out of that a few things that God is teaching Hezekiah about himself. Because remember, God is teaching us when he responds to us. Always about himself. Just four things about what he's teaching Hezekiah. I'm praying that they'll help you as you think about him as well. Here's the first thing. I will act to defend my glory. That's what God's teaching. Look at verse 22. Whom have you mocked and reviled, Assyria? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? And then he gives the answer. Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers, you have mocked the Lord. Here's what he's saying. Hey, Assyria. Who do you think you're talking to? That's his message back. Do you, do you know who you've been talking to all this time with your fancy speeches and your mocking? Oh, I got to tell you, I find that part so satisfying to know that God really is on it when he wants to defend his glory. And I'll tell you why. Sometimes I've made the mistake too often in the morning before work grabbing a cup of coffee and reviewing five or six of my favorite news sites. And uh, can we all agree that for the most part, that's bad news? 
Can we all agree for the most part that we're not seeing things looking very good on any level? And it kind of stirs my spirit up, but it's not just the way of the world, whether it's weather or all the tensions in the nations. I look at the world and I continue to see humanity's rebellion against Almighty God. And there's this thing in me that goes, how long, Lord? How long will you continue to allow your glory to be so besmirched? Then I remember, God's not worried about this. God has said over and over in his word, I will act to defend my glory, and the ultimate act of it is going to come. It's still coming. I love this. Matthew 25, verse 31 says, when the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, comes in his glory and all the angels are with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Praise God. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Oh, yes. God says to Hezekiah, he says to you and me today, I will act to defend my glory. And to the believers here, we don't need to worry about it. Here's the second thing he says. Here's why we don't need to. I am sovereign. I'm sovereign. Look at verse 25. If you've ever doubted the sovereignty of God, don't doubt it here. He says to Assyria, have you not heard that I determined it a long time ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. He's basically saying to Assyria, you're a tool. I'm using you to accomplish some things that I have. You don't even know. You don't even know. But don't be thinking that you have, you're running your own agenda here. I have it. I'm using you for a time being, and then you're coming to an end. Here's the third thing. I will resist the proud. Look at verse 27. He says, but I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Wow. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth. And uh, any a student of history uh, of the nation of the uh, Assyrians knows that when an Assyrian, uh, when they took over a land, they would find all the leaders of that particular country and they would put hooks in their noses and bits in their mouth, they would strip them naked, tie those hooks and bits to chains, and put them on a long chain, and march them through the town to humiliate them. And here's the Lord saying to this country, you who have been doing this on and on and on, here's my judgment. I'm putting my hook in your nose, and I'm going to turn you back by the way you came. And then finally he says this, this is the word of the Lord, I will deliver my people. Because that's who God is. God is a deliverer. He's a redeemer. He's a savior. Notice what he does here. He moves center stage now. This is almost stunning. If this were a movie, I mean, 80% of the budget of the movie would have been spent on this scene for the CGI effects. Verse 35, look at it. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. I mean, think Moses and the Passover and the angel of death here. They just went to bed. They woke up in the morning and the entire Assyrian army is wiped out. And then it says, this is kind of the understatement of the year. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed. You think? He's got nothing left. And he goes, and it says, and he went home and lived in Nineveh. Here's the last verse as we wrap up the story here. Note it. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adremelech and Sherazar, his son, struck him down with the sword 
and escaped into the land of Ararat. Now, we're at the end of the story, and I want you to know that I believe God has a sense of humor and irony in the way he was inspiring his word to be written here. This is a story, really, that has two kings. One king is great and powerful, and he comes and mocks the living God and says, no one can stop him, certainly not Hezekiah's God. The other king, Hezekiah, is weak and powerless, and the wheels have totally come off his life. Hezekiah goes into the house of the Lord, and he spreads his situation before God, spreads his helplessness, and he's delivered. The other king goes into the house of his God, Nisroch, and he's murdered. One king turns to the true and living God and experiences intervention. One king turns to a pagan God with all his strength and is left dead. Do you know it matters, the God that you turn to? It matters whom you turn to. That's why 700 years later, another king would come to the throne that Hezekiah was on just for a short period of time. This time, a king would come who would be the true son of David, and he would sit on the throne of David, Jesus Christ. And when he came and was inaugurated as king permanently, eternally, do you know what his message to the world was? I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Listen, do you know what he was saying? It matters the God to whom you turn to. And as we come to the end of this here, turn to Jesus. Turn to Christ. If you're a believer this morning and you have burdens and challenges that you you really haven't dealt with, I would encourage you as you look at this persistent prayer, spread it before the Lord. And watch him work. In fact, I'm going to help you with that right now. Why don't you just bow your heads with me as we prepare to worship. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we come today as your children, fresh off the encouragement that when children come to their father and ask for food, he doesn't give them snakes and scorpions. And and Father, we come to you, our heavenly Father, so perfect, so righteous, so gracious, so kind, so majestic. And we know that you receive us because you've said Jesus is our access, our mediator. You've said that we'll find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And Lord, right now as we continue to pray and worship and sing and perhaps pray some more, Lord, we want to spread before you some burdens in our own life, Father, that are just beyond us. And we turn to you, the true and living God, today. In Jesus' name, amen.